Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. This morning we come to the first of two concluding messages in our series, Carving Out a Godly Culture. And I want to remind you where we've been and uh, how we're going to finish using the diagram that hopefully you've become familiar with over the last uh, several months. And what you see behind me is where we started. We started with uh, the moral constitution of God, which is the Ten Commandments that we saw. And we, we came to understand that morality, God's abiding morality, is not something that's relative. It's something for every people of every culture, for every time. And it is to the soul and to social relationships what food and air are to our physical bodies. Absolutely, absolutely necessary. And God encapsulated those things into ten simple principles, and yet we found as we moved to the next level and looked at our personal selves and took an honest personal evaluation, as simple as those truths can be communicated, they're extremely difficult for us to use or live out in our own particular lives. And the reason for that, as we learned, is because we have a serious nature problem. It's not that we don't want to do these things. The reality is, is that we don't have the will to do these things. We live alienated from God. And so that led us to the next level where we talked about the dependence on God's grace. And we saw that for us to be filled with energy and life, to live out the way that God desires for us to live out, there had to be a rebirth, a regenerative place in our life where God breathed His life into us, His Spirit into us, His energy and His will into us to do the things that He requires of us. And then we moved to the next level in these new life experiences and we discovered that though that regenerative act started the process, until we go on in the process and discover that what God has told us really works, we never have the confidence or the center post, the conviction to go on and live out that lifestyle for the rest of our lives. Now we find ourselves at the core though, the core called conviction. And I want you to know this morning, if enough people experience this kind of moral and spiritual conviction as they move through these things and come to this core, if enough people around our city and state and land come to a place of moral and spiritual conviction, cultural change in society as a whole is inevitable. Cultural change in society is inevitable if more and more people embrace this moral and spiritual conviction. You might ask, well, why is that? And it's because it is people of conviction who are the principal change agents within any society. Often they are a minority. They start out as a minority. But conviction leads them to be a courageous and vocal minority, unshakable in their pursuit of change. And if they go long enough with enough conviction, society adjusts to them rather than vice versa. You know, it was conviction that brought John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield from England to America in the 1730s to preach to a lifeless America at that time a gospel of change. And the result of their ministry and their hours of toil was a cultural rattling that created a spiritual awakening that historians call the first great awakening of America. Those men are credited not only with revitalizing American moral life, but of giving the Americans as a people in the 1730s the moral fiber, the moral resolve 
to then go on and stand up against an empire, the British Empire, that was oppressing them, using them, enslaving them, and abusing them. Now, there was no will of the American people to resist that, but when the Great Awakening took place, there was a new American. And the new American said, taxation without representation, we're not going to have it. The new American said, let's dump the tea overboard in Boston. But I want you to know, those things didn't happen by accident or in a vacuum. Those things happened because there was a people who had been revitalized with a sense of justice and rightness and righteousness. They went on and wrote the Bill of Rights. They went on and wrote the Constitution of the United States. And all of those laws and all of those principles and all of those uh, codes reflect the work of men 40 years earlier, John Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, who were men of conviction, but whose courage went on to spread to the many and to the many a new world and a new nation. Conviction is still the ruling power of America. It was conviction that led Martin Luther King to assault the inequities of civil rights for minorities, in particular African Americans. You know, I am old enough to remember as a boy of 10 years old going over to the A&P store across from my house and going into it and walking in the back and I remember those bathrooms that said men, women, and colored. You know, when I think about that now, there is a sense of incredible shame that washes over me. I remember going to the Dixie Theater on Trenton Street where all the kids hung out on Saturday night to see the Saturday night preview. And I remember walking into that auditorium and there was a sign for whites down on the main lobby and a word that said Negroes with a sign pointed up into the balcony. You know, it took the courageous conviction of a minority to overturn those inequities. You know, it is conviction today that shapes our words and languages when it comes to men and women. Years ago, it was the conviction that led women like Gloria Steinman, Betty Friedan, and a host of other feminists to break down what they considered was social inequities for women in a male-dominated society. Now, whatever you think about that, I just want the church to hear this. It is conviction of those who have changed the landscape. It is their conviction that makes America a different place here in the 1990s. Every quarter of American life has been affected by the radical tenets of feminism. Even our speech has been altered. It's been gender neutralized because of their courage, yes, courage, to stand up to what they thought was wrong. And manhood in itself is now in a state of social crisis, having to adopt to what revolution they inspired some 30 years ago. Webster's defines conviction this way. It says conviction is simply a firm belief. I want to give you a different definition, though. I think one that, that grabs me a little tighter. I believe that conviction is something you hold on to even when it hurts. That's a better definition of conviction. Often when it hurts, that's which we thought was conviction in us suddenly tells us that it wasn't conviction at all. It was another substance, maybe convenience, maybe comfort, maybe compliance. But when the pressure is on, when things are out of control, when there's pain involved, or when I'm not getting what I want, my pleasure's being denied me, or there's the possibility of being alienated or ridiculed, 
When I find I've got convenience, I find my convenience under that kind of pressure caves in. I find my comfort runs. I find my compliance rebels. And all that's left is what really is conviction. Because in those moments, conviction stands. The last few weeks, we've observed some of the elements that make up conviction. We've talked about it from our study. At the base of conviction, Dan told us, was the sense of confidence in God's ability, God's authority, God's agenda. We saw in the battle of Jericho, there needs to come a place where we wholly consecrate ourselves to the Lord. It is an act, a conscious act, where we give ourselves over to Him fully. And then we believe God at any cost from that point on, for however long, with exact obedience, and yes, even foolish perseverance. Those are all elements of conviction. And if you were to take those elements and wrap those up into flesh and blood and stand a man in front of us who exemplifies all those things we've talked about in the first part of the book of Joshua, we would come to Mr. Conviction himself. And in Scripture, his name is called Caleb. Caleb. Now the best way for you to grasp the events that we're going to look at in Joshua 14 and 15 is for you to turn back to a previous event in Caleb's life in Numbers. So I'm going to ask you to turn back to Numbers chapter 13. We're going to read from 13 and 14 some excerpts. But as you remember, Caleb was one of the 12 spies that went out to spy out the land. And this is where we pick it up as they come back to report to Moses in verse 25 of chapter 13. It says, when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation. They showed them the fruit of the land. And they said, we went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. That's the good news. But now the bad news. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, and this is where their focal point in their journey into the land, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And that's all they remembered, really. The fruit was inconsequential. All they thought of was Anak. Now, who was Anak? Look at verse 33. Anak was part of the Nephilim. That is, these giants that lived in the land, and they focused on those because they were such huge creatures, these big men. They lived in these great cities, and we look like grasshoppers. And by the way, archaeologists have uncovered part of Anak's kingdom. And they were large-sized people. In fact, there's a femur bone in the London Museum of one of the sons of Anak that indicates he was a person eight to nine feet tall. These were real giants. I mean, it wasn't fictitious. They were real. So what happens? Well, the people rebel. They say, we can't go into the land. We can't take it with that kind of people there. Now look at verse chapter 14, verse 6. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes and they spoke to the congregation. They said, we can do this. Verse 8, if the Lord pleased with us, he will bring us in the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed. But then verse 10, the congregation's response. But all the congregation said to stone these two men with stones. You see, the congregation was a congregation of convenience. They were a congregation of comfort. They were not a congregation of conviction. And so they repudiated the report of these two faithful men and went with the majority report, and then you know the rest of the story. 
because they traded in a land of milk and honey for sand. Forty years of dirt. That's what they traded for. God's judgment on this rebellion of convenience is seen in verse 28 of chapter 14 of Numbers. It says about these people, As I live, the Lord says, Just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do. Your corpses shall fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to the complete number from 20 years old upward, who've grumbled against me. Now, there were probably a million men at that time, according to historians. So for 40 years, they wandered around where these 20-year-olds and ups died. That's what Caleb and Joshua had to live among, this culture of death. That's about 70 men a day who were dying as they marched to nowhere. And yet in the midst of that futility, what we'll learn about Caleb is he refused to cave in to despair or unbelief. He still believed God would give them the land. And this is one of the points I want you to hear about conviction. Conviction has the power to wait. That's what I loved about Sandy's testimony this morning. Spiritual conviction has the power to wait. And so now we come to Joshua chapter 14 where the payoff is about to take place. Now we've skipped in our study over chapters 8 through 13 and in those chapters what's actually happened since Ai is Jericho, I mean uh, the armies of Israel have gone and taken a large portion of the land. They've confronted 31 additional kings and kingdoms and they've defeated every one of them. They're now clear about conviction and Ai. So now they've won. And if you count their victory over Jericho and their loss to Ai, they've got a 32-1 and record at this point. They've taken most of the land and now we come to chapter 14 and they begin to divide it up. And that's where we read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 14. It says, Now these are the territories which the sons of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the household of the tribes of the sons of Israel apportioned to them for an inheritance. It says they begin to divvy out the land. Verse 5, Then the sons of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they divided the land. And then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, this one tribe, Judah. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to to uh, Joshua, you know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. And now he's going to make a request. Don't turn. We're going to stop there for just a moment. We're going to pause. He's beginning to address. He's going to ask for the land. But at this point in Scripture, we get a sense of uh, Caleb's background. It says he was the son of Jephunneh, a Kenizzite. Now that doesn't say much to you, does it? Until I say this. You know what that means? That means Caleb was not a Jew. Caleb was a Kenizzite. And a Kenizzite was of the family of Edom, and the Edomites were one of the long-standing enemies of Israel. Somehow in his past, we don't know, Scripture doesn't tell us, but somehow he had been absorbed or adopted into the nation of Israel, maybe as a young man. It's interesting because it makes you want to ask a few more questions, doesn't it? And so I looked up Caleb's name in Hebrew. You know what Caleb means in Hebrew? Dog. Now, we love dogs. I'm a dog lover. But in the Middle East, they hate dogs. They kick dogs. Dogs are scavengers in the Middle Eastern culture and outcasts, and they don't want anything to do with dogs. And so given that, and that's a kind of a historical precedent, why would any parent name his son Dog? Unless that gives us a hint 
to his abandonment, unless that gives us a hint to him being an outcast, thrown away by his people, his pagan people, and so on and so forth. What I get from that is that Caleb had a pretty rough beginning in his life. Pretty difficult background. And somehow Israel found him or he found Israel. I don't know. And maybe he came to Israel as a child. Maybe it was the merciful compassion of a Jewish family that brought him in. Or maybe he was invited in, kind of like Rahab the harlot. Who knows? But he was loved by these people, accepted by the nation of Israel, brought in to the tribes of Israel. And in that love and compassion, what he began to do is love the God that they loved. And he began to worship the God they worshipped. And what he found in his heart is a desire to serve the God they served. Now when he joined Israel, you didn't, when you join Israel as a Gentile, you don't join and just kind of become one of the Gentiles that hang around the 12 tribes. You actually get invited into one of the 12 tribes. And we know which tribe he belonged to. He belonged, interestingly enough, to the tribe of Judah. And the tribe of Judah is the tribe of kings like David and like Solomon and like Jesus. You know, I find it interesting that many of the famous Gentiles who were brought into the nation of Israel, Ruth the Moabitess, Rahab the harlot, the Amorite, and now here, Caleb the Kenizzite, they all came into the tribe of Judah, the tribe of kings, right into the very heart and core of Israel, they were brought in and accepted. You know what that reminds me of? Myself. Makes me think of my backdrop. And regardless of who I am or what race I come to, through or what economic status I have or what rough beginning or bad background or sins I've committed or messes I've made, you know, it's interesting that the heart of God is still open to the dogs of the world. And when you embrace Christ, here's what Jesus says. He says, to as many as received me, to them I give the authority and the right to become a child of God. That's who you are. With all the privileges, right into the very heart of the kingdom. You don't have to be a certain race or a certain gender or a certain economic status or a certain performance basis. You just come right on in to the very core of the kingly line of God Himself. Isn't that not exciting? You see, Caleb the dog now was Caleb of the tribe of Judah, the tribe of kings. And Caleb's conviction, I believe, was birthed right there. And let me explain why. Because he drank at the well of being rescued and now having this rich inheritance. And one of the things I worry about for us and sometimes our lack of conviction is maybe we don't understand how much we've been rescued, the future that we now have that we wouldn't have had, the assets that are in our account that would never have been there now that we're a child of the king, the abilities that now are granted to us when we were inadequate for everything, to know how we've been rescued and what we've inherited. You know, when that happens in your heart, when you really understand that, that's the ground floor of conviction. Because you begin to stand up and say, if that's been done for me, then I'm going to live for the king in whose tribe I now get my inheritance. That's what Caleb understood. He understood to whom much was given. Now much was required. He was going to live like that. 
He was going to stay the course regardless of what others did. And of course he did just that. Now look at Caleb's request now that we're in Joshua 14. Because we come to verse 7 and Caleb makes this request. And it's an interesting one that he asked for. He says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me to Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought word back to him that it, what was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren, my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. And so Moses swore on that day saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden shall be an inheritance to you and to your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God fully. And now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness and now behold, I am 85 years old today. I am still as strong today as I was in the day of Moses when he sent me as my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now, give, now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that Anakim was there, the sons of Anak, that is, with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will, send, will be with me and I shall drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb. Caleb is 85 years old, but Caleb is still a strong, vibrant man. You know why? Because regardless of what age you are, spiritual life gives energy and vibrancy to life. And he has embraced that out of the conviction of his life. It reminds me of what it, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He says, though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being what? It's being renewed. And certainly he expresses that renewal. And with youthful energy, he says, Joshua, I have a specific request of you. I want that part of the land, that specific part of the land that caused my generation to fall back. I want the hill country called Hebron. God has promised it to me, and now on this day, I want it. Now, I want to tell you two things about Hebron, because it'll help you understand what he's asking for. First, Hebron was the best part of the promised land. I want you to imagine it was forested, it was hill country, 3,000 feet above sea level, which in the, the land of Canaan is a high spot. So it's up there, it's very lofty, it's got a scenic view. I'm sure when he was walking around in the desert with all those of convenience, not conviction, from time to time he and Mrs. Caleb probably had a discussion about the A-frame they were going to build up on that mountain. But it was more than just a scenic spot. It was a very special spot in the life of the nation of Israel. Because at Hebron was where Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, first received parts of the Abrahamic covenant to which he believed God for. So it's a very special, sacred spot like, like uh, Gettysburg or something like that would be in America. It was a historical spot. But not only that, it was this place where Abraham was buried and Sarah was buried and Isaac was buried and Jacob was buried. This We're talking prime real estate, the very best of the promised land. But there's something else you need to know about Hebron. It was the best part, but it was also the hardest part to take. Remember, they'd gone into the land, they'd taken most of the land, but nobody had chosen to assault Hebron. Why? Well, because remember back when the spies went in the land and they saw the giants and the sons of Anak? That's where they lived. They lived at Hebron. 
That's where they were, and they were scary creatures. In fact, for hundreds of years, everyone surrounding this little region were afraid of these giants. The Moabites called Anak and his, and his uh, uh, generation terrors, horrible ones. Other cultures called them the ghostly ones. They seemed invincible. They spoke a gibberish that no one understood, and it scared everybody to death, and no one dared take them on. It's like some of our problems, isn't it? We see these problems, and there, there's some that we can take, but then there's a few. Man, they're just giant. We just kind of leave them alone, pacify them, hope they won't bother us from time to time. No one in Israel, past or present, had chosen to challenge Anak and Hebron except a man who God had worked in his heart from the very beginning and blessed and whose heart was turned to God fully, and he said, give it to me. Give me the best. Give me the hardest. I'll take it. Now I want to stop for just a moment because there's a good stopping place here, and I want to ask a question. Because I believe this question begs to be asked to us in just reading a story. And the question is this. What part of God's kingdom are you asking Him for? See, when you became a Christian, in a sense, you entered a spiritual kingdom. So let me ask you, what part of the kingdom are you asking God for? You know, there's different parts. If I can use the analogy of the promised land, there's the flat, fertile part. And in that fertile part are all the promises of God and reassurances of God and forgiveness of God. It's just there for the taking. And usually a new Christian runs into that land of milk and honey, and he finds forgiveness, and he finds that it, his sins are forgiven, and he has a hope and a future and all those things, and it excites him. But you know some, something? Many times, Christians never leave the flat, fertile plain. And their whole life, 20 years later, is still, gimme, 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 bless me, save me, forgive me, help me, but don't require anything of me. I just want to stay here and I just want to live off the fruit of this fertile plain. Then there are some of us who move on to what I call the scenic beauty part of the land. It's the place that there are places there where we just like to go in and camp because when we're in those little sites, they inspire us, they thrill us, they give us all kinds of warm emotion and fuzzies and we just enjoy being in those places. Might be a great worship service. Great preaching, good Bible study, sitting before some teacher that just really wows us with his insight into the Word, whatever it might be. But you know what? It doesn't translate into an effective life afterwards. Right? You know what I mean? So Sunday after Sunday or three or four times a week, there are Christians all over America who flock into a place to get re-emotionalized about the beauty of the kingdom of God. Then they go out and they live ineffective, impotent, compromised lives of convenience, not conviction. Then there are some of us who like the rolling hills of the land, of the kingdom. The rolling hills of the land is kind of where there, there are times just because of our spiritual maturity that we're going up with God and just about the time we really start getting into the high country, we feel like we can take control, right? And so down we go. And then we get down, and then we go, oh, this isn't any good. So we let God take control, and up we go. 
And just about the time we really start getting into the high country, we take control and down we go. And so 20 years later, our Christian life is this all the time. And then there's another part of the kingdom. And that is the highest part and the best part. But it's also the hardest part. It's where there is stable spiritual maturity. It's where there's real conviction, even when it hurts. It's where there is obedience, where there is sufficient and significant spiritual adventures, where there's the real fruit of the land. So let me ask you, which part are you asking God for? If you ask God for the highest and the best, and I hope there's some Caleb's here who just mentioning that you go, that's what I want. If you want that, then let me tell you some things. You will not be content with just being married. That's not good enough for a Caleb. They want to go all the way to the top and they want to experience real intimacy with their wife or their husband. If you're a Caleb, you will want more than just forgiveness of sins from your Christianity. You will want to go to the high country and you will want to experience a relationship with God and do whatever it takes to have that. You will not be content with just being a success in life. If you're a Caleb, if you want the high country, you want to be significant in the kingdom of God. You will not just want more, you will want to learn how to give more. You will not just want more friends. No, instead, you will want to be pleasing to God whether you have any friends or not. That's the best part of the Christian life, but it's also the highest. So which part are you asking God for? Caleb said, I want the hill country. I want the place where the giants are. I want to remove the reproach of my brothers. And I want to build that A-frame there for my wife. That's what I want. So in chapter 15, verse 13, Joshua gives to Caleb, it says, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah. See, he gives him a portion because he's not really a part of that except by adoption. According to the command of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron. And in verse 14 it says, And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, and Ahiman and Talmai, the children of Anak. This morning, I want to give you four take-home truths for any would-be Caleb's that are here. And listen, I'm not a novice in the Christian life. There's not many here. There are some Caleb's here. And some of you, maybe even today for the first time, you go, I want the best, and the best is the highest, and the highest is the hardest, and I want that, so tell me how. Well, I want to give you four things that just exhibit the life of Caleb if you want that kind of life. Number one is this. Background is never the deciding issue of life. Your background is never the deciding issue of life. Your faith ground is the deciding issue. Now, what do I mean by faith ground? I mean that when you come to special moments in life where there are these curves in the road, you choose... God's agenda and God's authority and God's ability, regardless of whether you think you can do it or not, whether you have the background for it or not, 
whether you've been mistreated in the past or not. You choose it because your conviction tells you that it's faith ground, not background that counts. Caleb, remember, began as a dog, an outcast, a pagan. But Caleb's lowly background did not determine his life. What superseded his background was the faith ground he chose to build his life on. He chose to believe God and follow through and stay the course. And the point for us is, no matter where you come from here today, whether it's a good home, broken home, whether it's wealth or poverty, whether it's dysfunction or function, yesterday doesn't count. The only thing that counts here today is today. And today offers you some faith ground. If you will but claim it and say, I'll take that part. There's a second principle, and that's this. God always honors a life of obedience regardless of its popularity. Now we know that Caleb's life was a life of obedience because three times in chapter 14 there's a phrase used to describe Caleb's life. And it says in verse 8, for instance, it says, but I have followed the Lord my God fully. Then it says in verse 9 the same thing. Then it says in verse 14 the same thing, that Caleb was described as one who followed the Lord my God fully. He was totally devoted. See, he had that thing we talked about weeks ago, that holy consecrated life. He had put something in the sand in the desert, and he said, I'm going to live for God regardless. And he stayed the course. And here in Joshua chapter 14, Caleb is cheered for his obedience. But I want you to know, back in Numbers 13 that we read earlier, he wasn't only not cheered, they said they were going to stone him for his obedience. And yet he stayed the course. But you know why he did? Because God always honors obedience. He always does. Last week, Dennis and Barb Rainey and Sherrod and I spoke to the uh, singles group, Change Point. Great, great evening that we had with the singles, and it was on dating and relationships. And as the evening went on, it got a little more sober and serious. There was a number of exhortations that both couples gave out of our own lives that were some pretty strong admonitions to sexual purity, to leading forth in relationships in a way that emphasized the best and the highest, the spiritual, the relationship not the physical, not bed, not drunk. We didn't talk about those things. We went to the high points. And for some singles, with the context of their world, that looks like Anak. That's giant what you're talking about. I don't know. I've never conquered my physical desires. I've got a group that tells me all the time it's okay. And I'm sure there were all kinds of other things running through the minds of some of the singles as they listened to us talk. But I want you to know, our call to them was not because we wanted to keep anything from them, but it's what we've experienced in our life. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good, but the good part is this. For us as couples, God has always honored our obedience. He's always honored it. He's always watched out for us. And in that obedience, we've claimed the best in our lives. I think, what is best in my life? And it's always been because of obedience. And it's when I've wavered that I've lived in the rubble of AI. 
You know, my son and I are looking through the Proverbs, and we read the other day Proverbs 8, 4, I mean 4, 8. And it makes this truth about this book. And I, I told Garrett, I said, Son, I wish I could tell you this now, because I know it to be true. And there are so many times I wish that somebody would have told it to me like this, but let me let Solomon tell it to you like this. Proverbs 4, 8. Prize her, prize her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. You see, God always honors our obedience. But obedience is born of conviction, and conviction changes the world. Thirdly, Caleb's life also teaches us that many of God's greatest victories are decades in the making. <laughs> we don't like that, do we? But yet it's true. You know the old adage, Rome wasn't built in a day? Character isn't built in a month. Marriage isn't built in five years. Healthy children aren't built in 15. A church oftentimes isn't built in 20 or 40. But God's greatest victories oftentimes are decades in the making if you will persevere in believing God's promises with conviction rather than what you see now. Now, you know, I need to hear that as a parent. Because let me tell you, there have been times Sharon and I have gotten in the car and we've driven away to go out on a little date. And I've turned to her and I said, we are the worst parents in the world. I mean, you can't make any more mistakes than we've made. At least that's how it appears when we look at our kids. And they're reflecting back to us every sin we've ever committed plus three. And we're saying, I've gone over this and over this with them. They don't hear. They don't listen. They're failing. And I want to weep for them. And I want to somehow rescue them. But the point is, is you don't raise children by looking at them now. What you do is you obey. And you keep investing. And you keep believing that God's greatest victories are decades in the making. Same way with a marriage. If you look at it now, you're in trouble at times. It's the same way with your character. If you look at how you lived last week, depending on what it was, but let's say it wasn't very good, you're, you're going to say, I'm not getting anywhere. This isn't working. God doesn't work. Spiritual life doesn't work. The church doesn't work. My life doesn't work. I wonder if Caleb said that after he was marching for the 28th year in the desert. We're never going to get out of here. I wonder when he finally got to the promised land and they had the defeated AI, if he didn't walk back to his tent and go, this is never going to work. Do you have that kind of conviction that sees you through the now and realize that the greatest victories of God, really, the greatest victories of God, the things that you'll treasure the most before your life is over are not things that can be made in a day. It takes decades of staying the course with conviction and investing, and believing, and trusting, and obeying, no matter how bad it hurts. But believing that the day will come where you'll have your A-frame up on top of Hebron. Then finally, a life of conviction leaves a legacy of godly influence. Now, how do I know that? Well, there's a little addition to this story of Caleb that follows in verse 15 and following. Because after Caleb took Hebron, it says that he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debur. 
Now the name of Deborah formerly was Kiriath Sefer, and Caleb said, The one who captures this city, I will give my daughter to him as a wife. And verse 17 says, And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, he went out and captured it. And so Caleb gave his daughter to be with this young man as his wife. And here's what I want you to hear. Caleb's life and his conviction were so attractive to this young man named Othniel that he didn't just want the woman. He wanted the family. He wanted to be a part of that kind of family that had that kind of conviction that was going that kind of direction. And he was willing to risk his very life at Debir to get it. That's what was attractive to him. And here's what I want to tell you. Every time you live a day of conviction, your life becomes more attractive, not just to God, but to others. And every season that passes, that that conviction stays in place, the more people want to be like you. The more your children want to be like you. The more your neighbors want to be like you. And you know what it leaves? It leaves a godly future to the next generation. Now, Othniel was just a young man when he captured this city. But I want you to know years later, when Joshua died and Caleb had died and Israel was in the land that, as happened so many times to them, they fell back into corruption and sin and their own self-appointed ways. And then they got in trouble. And then they cried out to God, somehow you got to save us. And I want you to turn the pages of your Bible for just a few pages to Judges 3. Because in Judges 3, we see how God saved the next generation of people. Judges 3, I want you to look at verse 9. It says, Then when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord that the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Do you see it there? And who was it that delivered them in the next generation? Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. And when he went out to war, the Lord gave him Cushan. And the next word just simply means double wicked. This king was doubly wicked. But he, re he prevailed against him because he had courage and conviction. And he believed God and he wasn't going to put up with it. And the land, it says, had rest for 40 years under the reign of this man, this older man now of godly conviction, who as a younger man joined a family of godly conviction, and they said, we're going to stay the course, we're going to go for the highest and the best and the hardest. Conviction is the ruling power of any land. It's the ruling power of Israel. It's the ruling power right now of America, the conviction of the few. It's the ruling power of Little Rock, it's the ruling power of your school. It's the ruling power of your marriage. It's the ruling power of your parentage. It's the ruling power of your character. It's the ruling power of your life. It's called conviction. And conviction is what carves out a godly culture. It's the kind of conviction that Caleb had. It's the kind of conviction this morning that Caleb invites you to have if, if, you want the highest and the best and the hardest of God's kingdom. Do you want it? Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your faithfulness to all generations. But thank you, most importantly, for a life well lived in a world that seems to have no moral leadership. I thank you for the reminder of Caleb, who tells us that it is possible, that there are men and women out there who believe you more than they believe their feelings or their circumstances or their background or their family or the dysfunctions that have been inflicted on them. They believe you. And the shout of Scripture is that you will always honor their obedience. Thank you, Lord, when there is no one else. <laughs> there is Christ and Christ alone who gives the authority to become, the right to be, child of God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.